we're in the middle of a series called Glorifying God with My Vote. And you say, Pastor, you know, you're not supposed to, or you're not supposed to endorse candidates. I'm not going to endorse candidates. I haven't done that uh, from the pulpit. But I do believe the Bible, as you, as you have seen, if you've been here the last few weeks, certainly has something, has some principles, uh, and certainly has some things to say about glorifying God. We talked, first of all, a few weeks ago about God's platform. Some of those things and, and issues that really speak to us today about what God is for. And asking ourselves if we're, if we're for what God is for. And going to the booth to vote and thinking about God when we vote. And then we also talked about glorifying God every day because we really vote for God every day. Whether we realize it or not, every single decision we make, whether you're a teenager a parent, a retiree, a seasoned citizen, and everybody in between, every single thing is a vote for God. You say, come on, seriously? Are you, are you really telling me that when I get up in the morning and I eat my Frosted Flakes? Nobody eats Frosted Flakes anymore, right? Well, some people do. Frosted Flakes, Lucky Charms, okay, you're healthy, basic four, Okay. So when you get up there and you make your decision in the morning, maybe it's eggs. Kelly likes eggs, so where's Kelly? Kelly's back there. Eggs, so we're eggs and bacon in the morning or whatever, right? Are you telling me, Pastor, that the Bible says I can glorify God with what I eat? Absolutely it does. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all the glory of God. So certainly. What that, what that doesn't do is it doesn't put a lot of pressure on me. See, some people respond that way like, oh my goodness, there's going to got to be 2,500 things. I mean, look at how big the Bible is. If every little decision, and we can get all stressed out and, and just like, oh my goodness, and, and this unbelievable load. But for me, you know what? The opposite is true. Because what it says for me is under God's grace, I have the opportunity to even eat for God. I don't, I don't have to go, you know, if I can't, I, I, I can't go around the world to Indonesia. I, you know, sometimes we, we think in our minds that, boy, if I could just do something big and glamorous and great for God, then I'd be a somebody. But that verse tells me I can do small things for God every day. And they count. And they matter and so we challenged you to think and evaluate your life about how can I glorify God in just the even small decisions that I make. I mean, th- listen, God wants you to think about him. He wants you to think about him. He wants you to be aware of his presence. We look at our, our society today and our culture, and we might be, we might be tempted to think, I'm one person. And can one person make a difference? I'm one student at a high school with 2,000 plus kids. Can one student make a difference? I'm one vote in a state with a couple million voters. Can one vote make a difference? I'm one Christian in my workplace and they're just, <laughs> there's not a lot of us there that, I mean, when I say Christian, I'm not just saying, you know, I'm Catholic or I'm Protestant and therefore I'm Christian. I mean somebody who actually lives their faith. And I'm just the only person that really seems to care 
or want to, and maybe you're even faced with hostility. But can one person really make a difference? I tried to show a video last week. I'm going to try to show it this week. And I'm going to speak a little bit about the hostility today that seems to be growing in our country toward biblical Christianity. And I, wanna, I want you to know that God has some advice about how we're supposed to respond. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm like, let's have a revolution. Let's throw the tea into the, into the Boston Harbor again, and let's, let's start all over. Sometimes I feel like that, but is that how God wants us to respond? Or, or are there some other responses when we face some hostility toward Christianity? And some of you might not be aware that we even are. But I'm going to give you some facts that I've researched and validated from sources like CNN and Fox News. <laughs> not that those are all reliable, because they're not uh, all the time. There are slants and twists and things like that, but there are going to be some statements that may shock you, some things that you may not realize are going on in our country today. But before we do that, I want to I offer you a little bit of inspiration. And sometimes before you can get inspired, you have to deal with the questions that are in your heart and the feelings and the emotions that are there. And so this video is going to start off with, you know, perhaps making you feel a little bit like, yeah, man, that's how I feel. I, I just don't think I can make a difference. But then there's going to be a massive transition in this video. And we're going to be hit with truths from the Word of God. And I hope it will inspire you just a little bit.
Do you believe that you can make a difference? If what the Bible says is true about us, can we make a difference? The answer is yes. The truth is, we won't really be the ones making the difference, will we? It will be Jesus Christ through us. As we cooperate with him in our individual lives, And I want us to see today some examples of some individuals who said, look, I want everybody to know this is the side I'm on. I am a Christian. I will take that term. But that's not going to be a statement about my religion. It's a statement about who I am. And who, whose I am. And to whom I belong and how, how I, I desire to live my life. The term Christian means little Christ. You know, in order for us to do that, don't we have to know Jesus? Don't we have to get in and know who he is? Don't we have to let him create in us his image? I mean, that's what the Bible tells us. that He desires to create in us a new creation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It is God who desires to both do, he wills and desires to do of his good pleasure in us. It's God who desires to work through us. And so we're going to have to face some opposition at times. And I'm not he, I, I don't mean today to scare you. But every single culture from the beginning of time when they lost biblical morality, biblical right and wrong, those cultures collapsed. It was simply a matter of time. Simply a matter of time. And as Americans, we're naive at best if we think that our nation is greater than the Roman Empire was that lasted for 250-some years before it broke apart. That that can't happen here. We're naive if we think that, there, that it's impossible that there would ever be a day when the military of our nation would turn on its own citizens. We're naive if we think that's not possible. When you remove God and biblical Christianity out of a culture and society, then what makes it, makes it different? What sets it aside from Russia or Germany or Italy? Nations whose culture became dominated by godless, godlessness and led them to justify genocide. I'm sitting here sometimes thinking, that just, that just could never happen in America, right? The, 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 the land of, you know, the Constitution where, and the Declaration of Independence. I have a document here. Acts of hostility toward people of biblical faith from 2008 to 2012. 
acts of hostility by the military toward people of biblical faith, acts of hostility toward biblical values. And it just keeps going. Acts of preferentialism for Islam. It keeps going. And its sources are Christianity Today, Bloomberg, NBC Washington, Los Angeles Times, the White House, uh, the U.S. State Department. These are statements that they've made, decisions and choices they've made. And that's just a few of the sources. Let me read, um, let me read just a couple of these. In 2009, when speaking at Georgetown University, our president ordered that a monogram symbolizing Jesus' name must be covered when making a speech. The first president since the National Day of Prayer was established declined to host services. Despite knowing the Catholic Church's stand on abortion, three pro-abortion ambassadors were appointed to the Vatican the first time ever, and of course all three were denied. In, in October of 2010, and in November of 2010, our president omitted the phrase, the creator, when quoting the Declaration of Independence not once, but multiple times. One would think our president would know the Declaration of Independence. In November of 2010, Obama also eliminated God in the phrase, in God we trust. He just replaced it with something else. Now, I'm not here to, to, to dump on our president because the Bible tells us we ought to love him and pray for him. And I mean, I, I have 25 things where our president chose to leave Christianity or God, where he actually said, do not include that at this event, where historically those events have always included references to God. Now, I understand that we live in a day of tolerance and tolerance is preached and that, that you know, we have people of diverse faiths and everything that live in our country. But we've never in the history of our country had leadership that simply refused to even acknowledge the historical facts of God being in our Constitution and in our Declaration of Independence and removing them, purposefully removing them. The Department of Veteran Affairs in June of 2011, this is from our military, forbid references to God and Jesus during burial ceremonies at the Houston National Cemetery. In August of 2011, the Air Force stops teaching the just war theory to officers in California because the course is taught by chaplains and is based on a philosophy introduced by St. Augustine in the 3rd century A.D., a theory long taught by civilized nations across the world. Air Force Chief of Staff prohibited commanders from notifying airmen of programs and services available to them from chaplains. They aren't even allowed to mention the services that are available now. 
The Army issued guidelines for Walter Reed Medical Center. This is a hospital stipulating that no religious items, Bibles, reading materials, and or facts are allowed to be given away during visits, whether it's by preachers or not, pastors or not. I can't go there and give a soldier a Bible. In February of 2012, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point disinvited a three-star Army general and decorated war hero, Lieutenant General William Boykin, from speaking at an event because he is an outspoken Christian, and they were concerned that he would share his faith. I mean, I'm just picking a few. See, sometimes we get so busy in our everyday lives, we don't realize what's going on. We don't realize, you know, and, and by the way, this is not our government's problem. You know, we, 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 this is not our president's problem. As Christians, we have to realize that there is an enemy out there who opposes God. Satan knows his days are numbered. He knows he's, in a, he's a defeated foe. But his desire is to destroy and to, and to wreak havoc and to bring as many Christians down and to oppress Christians to make it difficult for the life-freeing grace of God to change the lives of people. His agenda is to oppose any of that. So this isn't, this isn't about stirring us up today and, and, oh, let's go to the polls and let's vote this guy out and vote this guy in. No political party. can bring the solutions necessary to our country at this time. No political party has the answer. See, well, pastor, who do I vote for? Vote for God when you go to the voting booth, okay? All right? Get along with God and pray about it. Look at the candidates and choose the person you believe God would have you vote, vote for. I know it's not good grammar, but okay? But what, what are we going to do when, when we face situations like Peter, look back at, at Acts chapter number four. When we face situations like, 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 like Peter and John, or how about these people? You remember Hebrews chapter number 11? We call that the great hall of faith, and there's all these people who, who did big things because of faith, you know? We go from Abraham, and we go all the way through some of these disciples and how they stood for God in their day, you know, David and Goliath and how he went out and he faced the giant and, and through, you know, God through him brought this great victory. Our Bible is filled with stories of people who in big moments exercise faith in God and God put him in the hall of, we call the hall of faith chapter in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And if, I don't know if that relates to you or connects with you, but I, I sit there and I read some of those stories and some of those names and I think, man, I want to I be included in that list, don't you? Man, if God has done a work in your heart and life, if, if he has changed you, uh, the realization that your sins have been forgiven and you've placed your faith and received him. And man, I'll tell you what, if he's begun to do a good work in your life, man, you ought to want to get on his side and say, hey, this is who I'm for. Jesus has changed my life. He's radically done it. I just want to introduce you to somebody who's made a great difference in my life. That's what these kind of people were all about. They were stoned. They faced opposition. First century, man, you can go back, you can read the stories. You can pull out Fox's books, Book of Martyrs and you can read about, about early, early uh, church leaders like Polycarp and Ignatius who were burned at the stake and fed to lions, still happening in the first century and into the second century. 
They were stoned, the Bible says. They were sawn in half. They were, they were tempted. They faced temptations and tests and trials. Uh, they, were, they ended up having to wander about. They were kicked out of their homes. They were homeless. They, they wandered about in sheep skins and goat skins. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were tormented. And I want you to read that phrase in yellow with me. Would you say this with me? Of whom the world was not worthy. Say that again. Of whom the world was not worthy. Today, I want you to be inspired to want to be put in that group. But if I ask you, are you willing to volunteer with the first couple lines? If it means tormenting, I'll do that for my Jesus. If it means afflicted and left homeless, if it means that my government comes in and takes all of my possessions, I will stand up and say, Jesus is my Savior. I want to have that kind of faith. And I tell you, there's days I don't have that kind of faith. But I want to have that kind of faith. So real quickly, I want to just look at a couple of stories from the Bible. A couple of incidents where disciples. By the way, you only do this for something that's radically changed your life. Nobody's willing to go through torment (laughs) and torture for something that doesn't mean anything to them. I don't find too many examples anyway. Most of the time it'd be like, okay, okay, I don't believe. <laughs> okay, what information do you want? What do you want me to say? And we just, we'll, we'll cave. But you don't cave when something's radically changed your life. So let's look at some things here. My response to the hostility against my faith. How did Peter and John respond? By the way, the Bible is filled in Acts with people who faced that. I mean, they were in the times of persecution. Persecution. This was really happening. Governments were coming in and taking away their belongings and, and you know, getting rid of them and, and leaving them destitute. And they had to run to their other Christian family that they knew, their friends, and, and they, had to, they had to have everything in common in order to not starve. So this was a very difficult difficult time so as we go through Peter and John I want us to observe some things about them how they responded and I want us to ask ourselves do do I respond that way is that true of me because we will face opposition it's it's coming more and more so when we look we think about some questions how should we respond to our government or, 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 or political environment, especially when it's hostile? How, how, how did the early Christians respond? So we want to go to the Bible to look. And what biblical principles and commands can help us respond correctly? So we want to see how they did that. We want to take that and turn that into like a principle, like something I can take with me. Okay, so let's look first of all at the story of Peter and John. Peter and John were on their way into the temple and, and God had given them the power to be able to heal somebody. And they were, they were preaching in Jesus' name. They were going into the temple on Sabbath days and, and they were engaging people and, and asking, hey, hey, listen, can we share somebody with you that's made a difference in our life? Can we share Jesus with you? And they were testifying and they were witnessing. By the way, these are fishermen. That was what their career was. So it's not like these were career pastors right or career ministers 
These were just some fishermen whose lives Jesus had so radically changed, they couldn't help it. They had to go out and they had to tell people this great work and miraculous work that God had done in their lives. And the, the, the story really starts back in verse 8, and it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them. So basically all these religious leaders and everybody that, that are really upset that Peter and John are preaching in the name of Jesus and converting a lot of people, or people are getting converted as they put their faith and trust in Christ, and they're losing their audience. They're losing their congregation. So they're calling Peter and John in, in, in front of this big committee. What's going on, guys? Hey, listen, we don't want you to preach and teach in this name of Jesus anymore. That's essentially what they said. And when we look at verse number 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, Government, <laughs> and religious leaders, these elders who were supposed to guide the people, If we do this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So they testify. So first of all, we see that they're filled with the Holy Ghost, right? And then they, they testify. And notice in verse number 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. These were men who were filled with the Holy Ghost. But you know, sometimes we get these religious concepts, and it's like, what is that? You know, today we, can, we have people saying, you know, I was filled with the Holy Ghost, and I babbled in, in tongues in church. Or, or something just overcame me, and I, I fell over, and, you know, they walk out of church, and their life is the same as it was the day before they walked in church. Now, I'm not saying that happens every time. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? No, Ephesians tells us, and I believe chapter number 5 and verse 19, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So we equate the Spirit of God with what controls our lives. So these men were under the control of God. Well, how do we recognize somebody who's under the, the control of God? If you look at Galatians chapter number 5, it tells you how to identify people who are under the control of God. It gives us this big, long description of people who are controlled by their sinful nature, and it's called the works of the flesh. And I mean, they're, they're, they're things that be on all of our bad list. And you look at that list, and you'd be like, yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Man, I don't want that in my life. Yeah, that's pretty bad, too. And then we get to things like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. These people lived consistently no matter the circumstances. That's spirit control. Listen, somebody could threaten their lives and they responded by, listen, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. There was love, there was joy, there was peace, there was gentleness, but there was faith. There was an uncompromising firmness about where they were going, who they were, what they were doing. And no matter who threatened them, it didn't change. See, some of us can't recognize whether we're spirit-filled because our circumstances control us. They dictate our spirit. You know, something, something breaks in the house as if nothing ever breaks in houses. And we lose our cool and blow up at it. We get a flat tire, we go around the other side, we kick the other one. 
Some guy cuts us off in the road, you know, driving down the road like nobody ever gets cut off. And we respond with, you, and road rage inside our car as if they can hear us and it's going to accomplish anything. Listen, the the spirit-filled person is controlled by the Spirit of God and what people do to them and what circumstances happen to them and what tragedies happen to them don't change who they are. Man, do we need that today, don't we? Man, some of us lose an entire day because of some tax bill we got to pay. We're so mad. The Bible tells us, pay your taxes, right? I get upset about it, don't I? You, some of you have heard me get upset about my car tax when I first came here. I, we, we came from Michigan. I, did, I didn't know what a car tax or a property, or like a, like a you know, personal property tax was. We didn't have that. We had house taxes, right? We didn't have car tax. What, what in the world? It was more than one of my car payments. To drive my car in the town, I thought I paid taxes when I bought it. Right? Jesus said, Pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what we find in this story is we find some of the early Christians, they were filled with the Spirit. They witnessed boldly. They pledged their unwavering devotion to obeying God. You say, well, where, where is that in there? Oh, and by the way, it's right here. Look at verse number 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What a great response to opposition. No, you can't pray in the name of Jesus. I was invited to pray at something in this town, and they told me I had to pray to a neutral God. Because we we want to be tolerant. Well, it is tolerant for you to let me pray to Jesus and for me to let you pray to Allah, isn't it? So why do I have to stop praying in Jesus' name? He's done so much for me. How could I do that? Listen, you can, you can judge and say, we're not going to have you then. That's your choice. You can throw me in jail. That's your choice. How you respond, but I, I, listen, I've got to obey God. Listen, I'm not saying do this in a cantankerous spirit. Remember, if we're spirit-controlled, there's love there, there's joy there, there's peace there, there's gentleness there, there's goodness there, there's meekness, there's temperance. I'm not saying do what Peter did the first time. Remember the first time the disciples were confronted with the Pharisees there in the garden when they were about to arrest Jesus? What did Peter do? Drew his sword out. Whack! Where is his sword now? He said, well, he's outnumbered. He was way outnumbered then. Jesus just happened to be standing there. Peter's realizing now that Jesus is with me in spirit no matter where I go. God and I are a majority, and if it's the will of God that I face persecution, I'm going to remain loyal to my God. So we look at this. This, this guy, these guys were filled with the Spirit. Man, people saw it. Man, they, it wasn't just that they touched people and healed people. They lived Jesus, man. They had the love of Jesus. They had the joy of Jesus. They had the peace of Jesus. They had the meekness of Jesus. They had the goodness of Jesus. Man, it permeated their lives. We look at Stephen a couple chapters later. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60, and they stoned Stephen. By the way, Stephen wasn't a preacher. He preached, but he wasn't like the pastor. 
He was just a deacon in his church. He was just somebody who faithfully served the body of his church. He was you. He was me, a normal guy, had a job, had a career, but was a leader in his church. And listen, they didn't like him either. They didn't like him testifying. He went back and, and, did, a, and did a huge history lesson. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. And let me show you how you guys, all the way from the beginning, you religious leaders, let me fix this. There we go. You religious leaders, sometimes this microphone gets the best of me. You religious leaders have been persecuting prophets and you've been, you've been you know, killing prophets and you, you've, been, you've been really opposing God while being supposedly the religious leader. He went through their whole history to say, look, here's who you are. You, you, you now have killed Jesus. Man, they didn't like it. They did not like it. And they took him out, and they stoned Stephen, and here's Stephen. Here's his response. He calls on God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, look at this. He drew his sword, and he took out as many of them with him as he could. Not how Stephen responded. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. What do we see in Stephen? If you go back through the story in chapter 6 and chapter 7, Stephen is brought before, he's in, the, he's in there in the synagogue, you know, debating. It, it literally, is, it's, it's apologetics. He's defending faith in Christ with a bunch of religious leaders in the synagogues in chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. In verse 55, it tells us that he's filled with the Spirit. We, we, we find again, I, I mentioned this verse already in Ephesians 5 and Galatians chapter number 5. How do I identify if I'm filled with the Spirit? And then they witness boldly. And by the way, Jesus said that all his disciples would have a passion to witness boldly. Acts 1.8, but ye, plural, shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me. He desires us to witness. There's all kinds of ways to witness. Some of us have a lot of words and we have little fear and we can confrontationally in a good way, a kind way, engage people about faith. Others, maybe we need to write, send texts, leave some gospel tracts somewhere. But there's still that burning desire to share the difference that Jesus has made in your life. So we see that in Stephen. We see a refusal to compromise. He's not going to stop. We see that he forgave his accusers. He forgave them. We go down through this list. He witnessed boldly, filled with the Spirit, refused to compromise. In chapter 7, in verse 60, he forgives his murderers. In verse 60, he gives up his life. You know, you'd sit here and say, and I, I say the same thing, you know what, I'm in America, God isn't calling me to give up my life today. But Romans 12, 1 and 2, I can't get past. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Are you a believer in Jesus? You know him as your personal Savior? Paul pleaded with those Roman believers, present yourself a living sacrifice. Make everything you do, your work, your career, your home, your children, your school, your music, television, your hobbies. Make it a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And in light of the cross, is that not our reasonable service? 
Isn't it just the reasonable thing to do? To say to a God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, that with that knowledge and the fact that you forgave me when I was yet a sinner, I opposed everything there was about God, and yet he forgave me. And when I turned to him, he said, I will remember that sin no more. I will seal you to the day of redemption. You will be my son. You will be my daughter. Is it not reasonable that that we begin our lives the same way Jesus did, identifying with the truth, getting baptized, and presenting ourselves a living sacrifice? God, you can have me. And in every circumstance, and in every trial, and every person I meet, I pledge my allegiance to think of you in that relationship. The Bible gives us a few pictures about how this happens. In that video earlier, there was a statement, you are salt and you are light. But with an ever-increasing hostility toward biblical Christianity, are we prepared to, to respond this way? Today, can you say, Pastor, I'm right with God. I have done what I know so far today that he wants of me to do. I'm walking with him. I'm in harmony with him. I'm prepared for his spirit to control me when opposition faces, whether it's circumstances or politics or our government. Whatever that opposition is, I'm ready to face it with the Spirit of God in control. Can we say that? Am I prepared to be filled with the Spirit? Am I prepared to witness boldly? Am I going to just say, hey, Jesus is the reason that I'm different today? And I'm just going to stand right there. You determine whether or not that is acceptable. And you do with me as you please. But I have to speak the things which I've seen and heard. I have to declare what Jesus has done in my life demonstrate my allegiance, forgive my oppressors, and pity them. You know, that's the word compassion. Surround their offense and love. We, we heard that this week at the couples retreat up in, up, in, up, in, uh, New, up in New Hampshire. Surround those who hurt you in the past with pity. It doesn't excuse their wrong. It just simply says, I pity what's going to happen in their life. Because remember, God, God brings consequence. And somebody who's hurt you deeply is going to face consequence. Not of your own hand and sword, but of a God who is just. And the way we forgive is by learning to pity those who've hurt us. Because we, we aren't going to forget. But we can choose not to bring it back up again. And we can pity them and have compassion as, as, as Stephen did, as Jesus did. And we can give up our lives. We can say, my technology, God, is at your disposal. I'll use my Facebook page. I'll use my texting. I'll use my minutes for you. We can say, God, you've got my wallet. People can check my credit card account. They can check my checkbook. God, you can have some of my time. I mean, it's so important that my children know the Bible. It's so important that I learn the Bible so that I can view my world through your view point. Hence the reason we are going to have some life classes at 10 o'clock, a little time of fellowship, and then some classes. I know that's a bad word, isn't it? 
time you say school, class, study, right? Great program that's going to begin the first Sunday of November. Our whole church will be studying the same topic. Parents, you can grab a devotional, take it home with you, spend two times reviewing the last week's lesson and looking at the next week's lesson coming up. Then we're going to have all these different classes on that topic. Great way, great way for you to give up some time for God so he can instill in you the worldview he wants you to have. But you know, we do what's important, don't we? Let's be honest. We do what's important. We do what's important to us. Say, Pastor, you're meddling with my time. I am. Because it blows my mind how any person here who's a believer in Jesus Christ can think coming to Sunday morning and worshiping and singing a few songs and hearing one sermon can get you through a whole week. You say, well, I, I, I'm, I'm reading my Bible throughout the week occasionally. And I, I say a prayer at, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to know the book. We need to know the book. So yeah, give up some of your life for God. Be salt and light. By the way, you're not the salt. You're not the light. It's Jesus in you. It's yielding to him. He's that salt and light. He wants to shine through your life. Let your light so shine. Yeah, it's really, because we can turn it off, can't we? We can say, I'm going to be silent. thing is, is God gives us the power of choice, doesn't he? Will I let him be salt? Will I let his love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness, faith, and meekness be seen in my life? This is how we respond when we face opposition with the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we respond. We don't need to pick up swords. We don't need to help God's prophetic plan be fulfilled. He can handle all that. Are you prepared? Father, I pray that as we think about these ideas and we see these two examples, Lord, I think of Paul. There were so many we could have used in the Word of God today. We could think of Paul the Apostle, who was Saul, a man who murdered Christians through fathers in jail, leaving their wives and children without incomes and homeless and so many other things he was involved in radically changed by you who goes around and preaches and his testimony is this that I was in labors abundant I was in stripes above measure I was in prisons frequently I was in death I was in the point of death often of the Jews five times I received forty stripes save one three times I was beaten with rods once I was stoned three times I was shipwrecked night and night and a day have I been in the deep I mean, I was in a lot of trips, journeying. I was in perils in, uh, in, the, in the waters, in the ocean. I had robbers rob me. I had perils of my own countrymen. My own family opposed me. The heathen opposed me. Cities opposed me. I had to wander in the wilderness. I had false teachers oppose me. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I fasted. I was even in the cold and sometimes without clothes. 
But if I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern my, my infirmities, that God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. His focus was, I want the power of Christ to rest upon me. He sustained me through all of this. We may face some opposition, but most of us aren't going to face that kind of Lord. And so I ask, God, that you would help stir us. One can make a difference, but together this group can influence a culture. We can make a difference in the schools in this community. We can make a difference in the government in this community. We can make a difference on our street where we live if we'll let you be salt and light through us. So God, as we have this time of worship, I pray that we would talk to you. That we would ask you to reveal to us where we're not prepared. And to help us be prepared so we respond the way Paul, Peter and John, Stephen and Paul did. They gave up their lives. What tremendous examples. I pray we will be found that faithful in our day. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. At the end of our service, we always have Kelly play a song. And we give you an opportunity to talk to the Lord. And you can come and kneel here and pray. We, 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 we let people pray, however the Lord leads you. But as Kelly begins to play, if you'll stand together with me. And let's just talk to the Lord. And would you ask that question?